right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is Dr. Shai Krug. And Dr. Krug is a licensed psychologist and ASECT certified sex therapist, and is the founder of Blue Anchor Psychology, a group practice in New York City focused on sex therapy, couples therapy, and generalist mental health care. So as you can imagine, based on that uh, introduction about who he is, we're going to talk about creating sexual connection within your relationship, some of the challenges that can arise, uh, specifically within men. We're going to focus in on what happens for you as a man where maybe you feel disconnected sexually to your partner. Uh, There might be challenges that arise, anything from erectile dysfunction uh, to performance anxiety to premature ejaculation. So we're going to cover a bit of a spectrum and Dr. Krug is going to share his perspective on not only what's happening physically within the body when these things transpire, but how you can move into a more effective uh, way of being, a more effective, creating some effective practices for yourself so that you can engage with your partner in a way that is freeing, in a way that is connective, in a way that uh, is rewarding. So today's conversation is going to be all about sex for the most part. So without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Shai Krug. All right, Dr. Krug, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this is a this is a pleasure, man. I, I looked into some of your work and I actually can't remember how I came across it. Um, but I thought you'd be a very interesting uh, person to have on the show and and to connect with. And I feel like your your perspective will be uh, will be welcome. So let's just start where I always start these conversations, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Such a, a great question. There's so much uh, richness and depth into that question, and it can really go in a lot of different ways. Uh, but uh, one particular experience comes to mind. Uh, I was, uh, as a kid, was a very, very anxious kid. I struggled a lot with separation anxiety and, um, you know, sleeping away from home was a really, really big challenge for me. Uh, up really through my high school years where I really did not have, uh, comfort and openness to kind of venturing out of my safe space, out of my comfort zone. And, uh, I had three friends in my senior year of high school who the previous summer had gone to Ukraine to do, uh, teaching and outreach work for kids there. And they decided in in the uh, in February of our senior year of high school, they were going to go back there and, and go back to that school that they worked at and just to kind of visit their kids and do some teaching for a week. And they asked me if I wanted to come uh, and kind of like a little bit of a, on like a spur of the moment. I was like, yeah, that sounds that sounds like fun. And I, I kind of like, you know, agreed to go. And in the back of my mind, I kind of thought to myself, there's there's no way I'm going to get on a plane and go to Ukraine. <laughs> like I, I I couldn't go to camp growing up, you know, sleep away, you know, uh, birthday parties, like overnight parties, like I it just wasn't something that I did. Um, so I kind of always expected that I'd back out last minute. And somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how this happened, I kind of got myself onto the plane and flew to Ukraine with three of my friends. This was not a structured trip. There was no supervision. We just kind of like went to Ukraine hmm. and uh, we landed in Ukraine. And I kind of looked around and said to myself, like, what in the world am I doing here? And I was kind of scared to death. And uh, I actually kept a journal Hmm. Um, of my thoughts and feelings during that time that I actually not so long ago uh, recently revisited. And I kind of realized that I was much more resilient than I gave myself credit for and, and much more resilient than I uh, I think many of, of uh, you know, friends or family, family members may have thought I, I was as well. 
And I kind of saw that, hey, you know what? I, I can do this. I can, I can go out of my comfort zone. I can take risks. I can uh, take on challenges. And that was kind of a really, a, a really big turning point for how I engaged with my anxiety, that I saw anxiety wasn't a, uh, a thing I had to battle with. I had to fight and, and, and get rid of, but something I could just bring with me on my journey. Mm-hmm. And it ended up becoming like, you know, I, that, that summer I went to, uh, I worked at a Sepoy camp for the first time. I then went, uh, went overseas for two years and I, uh, you know, went on to college and, uh, it kind of really changed the trajectory of my life. Just seeing that, Hey, you know what? I can, I can navigate this. I can deal with this. And that was really kind of a huge turning point for me in my uh, late adolescence. Yeah. I, I appreciate that story. I think the, the thing that stuck out to me was just that notion that my anxiety isn't something that I need to get rid of. In order for me to go do these things, I can take it with me. I think that that's such a great way of saying it because I, you know, the individuals that I've interacted with that have a tremendous amount of anxiety, that's the battle, right? Is how do I get rid of this so that I can? Mm -hmm. And I like that concept of, no, I actually don't need to get rid of it. It's how do I go do these things and bring it with me, knowing that it Mm -hmm. might show up and then equip myself to navigate it, you know, should it show up in a more intense fashion. Sure. Uh, so I, I I like that. That's that's great. Would you say that uh, just the sort of keeping stock of things as you're going on that trip, right? Being able to journal while you're going through that kind of gave you a connection to to mitigating, navigating, sort of traversing the anxiety of that because that's a that's a pretty substantial shift from I you know I'm not going to go to camp to I'm going to go to Ukraine. Um, right. So like, what were the tools, the resources that you sort of relied on? during that experience? It's a great question. So first of all, I think that uh, one, one of the, the takeaways that I had from this experience, actually, uh, I wasn't aware of this at the time, actually helped inform my clinical approaches now. So one of the primary modalities that I use now is called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is really rooted in the premise that we don't have to go to war with our emotions. We can learn to accept the parts of our experiences that hurt and just bring them along for the ride. Mm. Um, But I think another component that actually fits well into what the ACT model is really all about is how do we contact our values, right? How do we do the things that are meaningful and important to us, things that bring us reward and fulfillment and meaning? I wasn't just going to like, you know, a random trip that I was just, you know, pushing myself to do. I kind of saw the larger vision, the larger mission of we're going to a school to help teach kids who don't have access to you know, good education. And, and yes, we were just seniors in high school. So we, you know, we weren't, you know, you know, certified teachers or, mm-hmm. or anything like that, but we're going to bring some, uh, some joy and some music and some teaching to kids who didn't really have access to that. So I think I was connected to the larger mission of there's something here that's really important to me. And can yeah. I engage this discomfort in the service of this thing that's really important? Yeah. Beautiful. So there's a sense of purpose embedded into what you were doing a sense of meaning right that was larger than yourself that sort of helped pull you out of that and then there's the exactly uh the undercurrent um yeah i love that you talked about acceptance and commitment therapy i had dr stephen hayes on the on the show oh sure i think two i think almost two years ago now my goodness (laughs) it feels like i was like oh yeah dr stephen hayes yeah uh that that work is wonderful and uh, you know that sort of brings me into the work that you do today uh, and I can imagine that some of those experiences that you're talking about and just the lessons that are embedded into that, you know, being able to bring that anxiety with you, being able to sort of go and pursue the things that you want um, within your relationship sexually and still being able to deal with those parts is, is going to be important. So mm-hmm. maybe just for context, uh, give uh, a little bit of a 
summary of the work that you do with people, how, how you do that work, and some of the common areas that you're normally engaged in uh, in your therapeutic practice? Sure. So just a little bit of background about myself and, and uh, to lead into the work that we do. So I'm a, a licensed clinical psychologist. I'm also an ASEC certified sex therapist. Um, and the practice uh, focuses on, on four broad areas, one area being uh, sexual dysfunction. So that would be specific difficulties with sexual functioning, sexual relationships. So that may be for men, things like erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, low desire. For women, that might be things like vaginismus, dyspareunia, low desire, difficulty with orgasm, things of that nature. The practice also focuses on compulsive or out of control sexual behaviors, things that are often colloquially referred to as sex addiction or porn addiction. Uh, I tend to be pretty squirrely with those terms because there's actually a lot of debate in the literature about whether or not the language of addiction is actually applicable when we're talking about sex and sexuality. So the second area uh, we talk about just uh, kind of colloquially referred to as out of control sexual behaviors, things that are inconsistent with, let's say, your values or things that are interfering with your, your functioning, with your relationships. The third area is focusing on couples therapy. So it'd be uh, things like dealing with infidelity, couples falling out of love, um, disagreements about parenting style, um, you know, conflict, things like that. And then the fourth category is kind of the more generalist mental health issues, things like anxiety, depression, trauma. We work with OCD. So kind of more generalist type issues. Um, so we're kind of uh, addressing a pretty, a pretty broad range of clinical issues. But when we talk specifically about sexual function, one of the unique challenges is that there is both a, an organic manifestation of sexual dysfunction. So that may be someone has underlying medical issues or physiological issues, changes that happen with age, such as um, changes in, in testosterone or estrogen uh, that result in uh, andropause or, men or menopause, um, or there can be psychogenic factors contributing to sexual dysfunction, things like anxiety or depression or trauma or relationship discord. Mm. So there's a lot of potentially underlying factors that can contribute to an individual sexual function, much of which may not fully be in their control, mm -hmm. right? There's not a person on earth who gets to control when their body starts to age. Mm -hmm. And some of those changes that happen in your sexual functioning as a result of aging, we can't necessarily reverse. Now, there are certainly ways of improving sexual function. There are certainly ways of, in, of increasing uh, an individual or couple's engagement in a meaningful sexual relationship, but there may at times be a powerful element of acceptance that's necessary in how we engage our sexual experiences, especially when there are changes that are taking place that we don't have a great deal of control over. Yeah, that's good. I mean, you know, I think you said the magic words that I could almost hear my listeners, you know, ears perk up, like improving sexual function. Okay. <laughs> Which I, you know, we're going to talk about later on in the show. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's going to be interwoven throughout this entire conversation. But I'm sort of curious about the, I don't want to ask this. I, I think it's, I'm curious about the the distinction between the sort of medical underlying um, causality of sexual dysfunction versus the emotional um, trauma-based, shame-based, anxiety-based dysfunction, like the emotional dysfunction that you see. Because I think it largely, it, culturally, it's almost more accepted. And I'm, I'm, this is maybe just my perspective. I'm curious to get yours. But it almost seems like culturally, it's more acceptable for you to have a medical issue that you can then take medication for than it is for you to have an emotional challenge that you actually need to, to work through. So I'm curious, A, if, if you uh, sort of agree with that or if you see that differently based on your practice and B, 
how do you begin to support people in either of those camps or categories? Sure. So it's a really great question because you're also asking a broader question, which is how do we conceptualize an individual's mental health? Mm-hmm. And I think as in contrast to other kinds of health issues, mental health issues are in many ways seen as, as a shortcoming of strength, a shortcoming of an individual's resilience or fortitude, right? If you have anxiety and your anxiety is crippling, well, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Get your act together, man. Like, this isn't so scary. What's the problem? Or if someone is clinically depressed and just get up and get out of bed. Why are you so sad all the time? Like there's, we, we look at, at an individual's mental health as, as some kind of like um, individual shortcoming, mm. as opposed to seeing it as uh, a set of challenges that is a byproduct of neurological functioning, hormonal functioning, um, you know, uh, life stressors that a person is experiencing. So that I think there can be a great deal of shame or guilt associated with mental health, which is why in many cases, people just don't talk about it. Now, the world has changed a lot in the past you know, decade or two where people are much more open talking about, uh, about men- mental health issues. And I don't know how many podcasts there are um, and YouTube channels that are dedicated to mental health. And celebrities are coming out and talking about their own individual therapy. It's much more accepted now to talk about an individual's uh, emotional and psychological well-being. But in many ways, there's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of shame associated with it, especially when we look at things like how um, men may conceptualize masculinity. Right. And and, you know, it's, it's I, I, I'm strong and I'm resilient and, you know, I, I can push through anything. And sometimes acknowledging that you're in pain may be seen as uh, a personal shortcoming. Mm-hmm. So I think there can be a lot of shame and stigma still associated with this, even though there has been a lot of movement, a lot of traction and opening up about mental health and, and general mental well-being. So when we think about the uh, the interplay between medical functioning, biological functioning, anatomical functioning, hormonal functioning, and psychological well-being, there's a lot of that's going to really overlap. So even if there is something that is really purely a medical issue and someone needs, let's say, medication to treat that medical issue, you're still dealing with the relational components that are going on as well. Mm-hmm. It's why I tell, um, I tell uh, individuals that come in uh, for any, any sexual dysfunction, men or women, I always say it's not a me issue, it's a we issue. Even if you yourself have a diagnosable organic medical conditioning that medical condition that's impacting your sexual relationship, you still have to address it in the relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that it, that you have to be in a relationship to address sexual dysfunction. So if someone as an individual, as a single person is saying, oh, you know, I'm having X, Y or Z problem, you can certainly address that with the individual. But if you're in any kind of dyadic relationship, you got to dialogue about that in the dyad. So there's always going to be some overlap, even when something is primarily medical. But there are so many systems involved in sexual function. So you have anatomical uh, functioning, hormonal functioning. There's vascular health issues. Um, and that's actually why uh, one of the early signs of, of, a, of uh, heart disease is actually erectile dysfunction. Hmm. Because uh, if your heart's not working properly, it's going to impact how your body is pumping blood to other parts of your body. So it's actually not uncommon for... Uh, for erectile dysfunction to be assigned potentially of some kind of underlying heart or vascular condition. So there are so many systems that are involved. And theoretically, any dysregulation in any of those systems can cause sexual dysfunction. So there's, there's really, I think, a uh, an important balancing act between an individual's physiological functioning and their psychological functioning, which is why I often work hand in hand with urologists and endocrinologists to make sure that a person is getting the holistic care that they need, that we're not looking at 
you know, just one angle of a potential difficulty, but looking at the entire system that what could be contributing to this. Yeah, it, fascinating. I love that you bring up a more holistic approach to this. I, I remember, um, I can't remember what his name is, but he's a professor at Stanford. And um, I, I talked about this on one of my podcasts, but he described basically the the functionality of what happens in our body in order for us as men to get an erection. And that when we are more in our parasympathetic nervous system, when we're more in a relaxed vegetative state, that it's easier for us to get an erection sure. versus in a sort of active sympathetic nervous system response because there's more stress, more cortisol, which I found fascinating because of course, you know, most most of us guys, especially in now nowadays world, are stressed to the max. Sure. Right. And then, you know, they wonder why they're in their forties and they're stressed out and their sex drive has sort of disappeared or started to wane. And it's like, well, you're you're constantly in this sympathetic nervous system response physically within your body. Mm -hmm. And so there's not a lot of room for you to be in this sort of more grounded, aroused uh, state. And yeah. so, you know, th this is why things like meditation and mindfulness and breath work and all of these things that are starting to emerge can be supportive in helping you to move into that more parasympathetic uh, veg vegetative, maybe isn't the right word, but grounded, calm orientation. Sure. So I guess what's interesting, though, is that we is that we struggle with the idea that an internal experience of discomfort like anxiety right. will activate the sympathetic nervous system the way that an external cue might. Mm -hmm. So when I give so I do a lot of psychoeducation about this, about the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, especially since both systems are active during sex at different times. Right. You have parasympathetic activation at the beginning, which is when arousal and desire is taking place. And you have sympathetic activation as you get closer to orgasm or ejaculation. But if you were to give an example of imagine you're walking down the street and a bear starts to chase you and you are <laughs> desperately running for your life. And then your partner shows up and says, hey, you want to go have sex? There's not a chance in the world you could get an erection. It's all the blood in your body is going to your, your leg muscles to, to get you away and to your heart and lungs to keep yourself oxygenated. There's not a chance in the world you could get an erection. Yeah. So we don't think about stress and anxiety the way we think about it in, as a response to an external stressor, an external threat, but our brain and body receives it the exact same way. So if you have a boss calling you in to, uh, to read you out for making some mistake at work, your brain and body responds to that as if though a bear is chasing you. Right, right. Well, I think it's such a good reminder too for people, for couples that are wanting to explore, you know, if you have a partner, uh, just as an example, if you have a partner that's wanting to explore, you know, sex in, we'll just, we'll just put some stuff like sex out in public places or like in the backseat of a car or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And you have another person that feels a tremendous amount of anxiety around that, right? What if we get caught this, we shouldn't be doing this, that kind of stuff. And their, their nervous system is being put in a stress response. It's going to be hard for them to engage in the act. And so sure. I think it's, it's, that's just one example, but I think that there's a multitude of examples where that is happening to a degree where it's uh, causing a, a bit of, challenge for the couple to actually engage in fantasies, role-playing, acting out their sexual desires. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you see? And that that's sort of one question. The second question is, what what within your practice, what do you see a lot of men really battling with and, and dealing with? Like, what are some of the challenges that seem to be predominant in our current culture based on the individuals that you see within your practice? Sure. So in response to the first question, that is certainly something that can show up, that if there are 
um, uh, either internal stimuli or external stimuli that create too much activation that can kind of shut down the sexual response cycle. That also actually speaks to why maintaining some level of unknown is actually important in sexual relationships. Because if you think about the sympathetic nervous system activation that you see in the, in the fight or flight response, you actually have a very similar response in response to excitation. So doing things that are kind of unfamiliar or maybe outside of your comfort zone it may actually be really important to maintaining sexual curiosity. That as couples, certainly in long-term relationships. So now early in relationships, when you're just getting to know a sexual partner, you you know the whole thing is unknown. Like you don't know their body, they don't know your body, you don't know what they like, they don't know what you you like. So everything is kind of an exploration. But what happens when you're in a relationship for ten years, or twenty years, or forty years? How do you maintain the same level of exploration or, ex- or excitement that allows for kind of that? Um, the emotional and physiological stimulation that makes sex rewarding for people. And sometimes that means kind of keeping things exploratory, going outside of your comfort zone and trying new things and opening up about vulnerabilities. And a lot of that actually contributes, even though the idea of stepping out of your comfort zone may elicit, let's say, the experience of anxiety, stepping out of of, of your comfort zone also results in excitement. Mm. And that excitement is actually important to keep your sexual self curious and exploratory. And that actually contributes to the long, to the uh, sustainability of a long-term sexual relationship. Couple, you know, we think about sexuality as existing from puberty to, you know, menopause or puberty to andropause. You're really a sexual being from birth until death, right? The, the population with the highest rate of new STIs in the country is the geriatric population because <laughs> they're not worried about pregnancy. And so they're not using protection. Right, so maybe not as much now because of COVID, but like the nursing homes used to have tons of, of STIs that are going around because people just aren't worried about pregnancy. Mm. Uh, so people, we are sexual beings from birth until death. And the only way to have a healthy functioning sexual relationship, you know, as your as your uh, your body develops and as your relationship develops is to tend to, to your sexual self. Mm-hmm. So this actually speaks a little bit to some of the things that we see uh, clinically in the practice. Um, so in terms of... Um, there, there's certainly people who are coming in for organic issues that they're seeing a urologist, but they're still having, let's say, anxiety or pressure surrounding sex. If it's something like um, like erectile dysfunction, which, by the way, erectile dysfunction and erectile disorder are actually two different things. Erectile dysfunctioning is, is the, erectile dysfunction is the medical language for uh, for having difficulty getting or maintaining an erection. There's actually two different systems involved in getting and maintaining an erection. Erectile disorder is where you have a psychological process. That is contributing to ED, mm-hmm. things like anxiety or depression or trauma. So we, we look at, at those as, as uh, oftentimes co-occurring, but but really actually distinct uh, distinct presentations. Um, so things like organic sexual dysfunction, like uh, you know ED or premature ejaculation, that someone is looking for tools to navigate that effectively, and also ways in, in improving uh, the uh, you know a couple's uh, sexual experience. Uh, are certainly things that show up. We also see a lot of psychogenic issues, sometimes not even uh, a a chief complaint that's sexual. So somebody comes in, let's say, for depression or panic disorder, and their their struggle with their, uh, with, you know, whatever the other issues are that they're they're experiencing are are kind of like, you know, flowing over into their sexual experience. And we're trying to navigate kind of, you know, two comorbid issues that are occurring simultaneously. And there are also things that are specific sexual dysfunctions, like uh, premature ejaculation, which is the most common sexual difficulty that young men experience, hmm. or erectile uh, functioning uh, that o- across the lifespan becomes more and more common as you age. So the 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 uh, 
the kind of general rule of thumb is that it's 10% per decade. So 30% of men in their 30s, 40% of men in their 40s, 50% of men in their 50s, et cetera, becomes more and more common as you age and as your body starts to change. So we, we, we're kind of you know uh, regularly tuning into what's going on in your body, what's going on in your relationship, and how do you move towards what's what's really important to you? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I'm glad that you are those stats sort of roughly accurate, like 30 percent in your 30s, 40 percent, because I was when you said that, I was like, really, 50 percent in your 50s. Like, <laughs> is that- so it's not it's not like it's it's kind of like a little bit more like a tongue in cheek rule of thumb. So okay. I, I, the, the specific data may be a little bit different. That's kind of like the rough idea okay, okay. of how common this becomes. But I, I, what I would say pretty confidently is 100 percent of men over the lifespan will experience something in their life that changes their sexual function. Yeah. So it is a completely uniformed experience for, for really for both men and women that you will have episodes that things don't go how you want it to go. And that is okay. That's an important part of being a human. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think we can touch on that in a second. I wanted to, there's a few things I want to talk about that I think would be helpful for the audience. Cause I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about these over the years, you know, through social media and whatnot. And I've, I've touched them a couple of times, but I think what I'd like to go back to is you talked about that there's two different systems for getting and maintaining an erection. Sure. And I'd actually just like to navigate that and then talk about premature ejaculation. So I'll, I'll follow up with a question about that after. Sure. So the two basic mechanisms, well, I'll talk about the, um, the, the way that erections take place, right? So the basic uh, mechanism, very simply, you have two uh, kinds of soft vascular tissues called the corpus spongiosum, the corpus cavernosum. And basically the way that an erection happens is you have increased blood flow going into the penis, right? So the arteries dilate, allowing more blood flow to come in and the veins constrict, preventing blood flow from going out. And much like if you like, um, you know, put a, uh, a hose um, onto like a water, onto like a like a, a balloon, and you start putting water in. If there isn't a way for the water to get out, the balloon just gets bigger. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the mechanism of how an erection takes place. So the way that the reason we differentiate between getting an erection and maintaining an erection is it could be the result of arterial deficiency that there isn't enough blood flow coming in, or there could be venous deficiency where there is too much blood flow getting out. Mm-hmm. So those are two different mechanisms. Um, in terms of getting the erection and maintaining the erection, which is why whenever we do an, an, an evaluation and related to sexual function, we're not just asking about, are you able to get an erection? We're also asking, are you able to maintain the erection? Mm. Now, that ability to maintain an erection also begins to evolve over the lifespan, which is why you have something uh, called a reflexogenic erection, which is an erection that is the result of stimulation to the genitals and a psychogenic erection, which is an erection that originates in the brain. So when you, when you think about sexually arousing things, as men age, psychogenic erections become more difficult and they require more reflexogenic erections to get and maintain an erection. So sometimes you do need to have more activity, more, more stimulation to get and maintain the erection, which is normal over the lifespan. But if there is sustained difficulty with maintaining an erection, for example, you have to start looking at, are there any organic medical issues that are resulting in your body not being able to sufficiently prevent the outflow of blood uh, during an erection? Uh, you know, immediately as you were talking, what came to mind is, you know, this the, the concept of psychogenic erections. And my immediate thought was, you know, you hear a lot of the impacts of pornography on men and their ability to be aroused and... Uh, you know, how that can, depending on your usage of pornography, impact your ability to get or maintain an erection or be aroused Mm -hmm. in general. 
I'm curious, is there literature or just in, even in your experience, is there any correlate between, you know, medium to high levels of porn usage and a decreased uh, psychogenic erection capacity? Like, is there anything in there where, um, I don't know, again, I don't know if there's research around that or if you have any thoughts or experience on that, because it just seems like there's probably something in there, uh, but maybe I'm just fishing. Sure. So there is some literature that supports that ongoing chronic pornography use can impact one's ability to get aroused. And a part of this can be a result of, of almost like a, a desensitization that takes place is that is that you're kind of so overly stimulated that things that were previously stimulating or arousing may not be as much anymore. But there is also some literature that talks about decreases in pornography resulting in improvement in, uh, in, in um, arousal functioning and erectile functioning. So there is some literature uh, that speaks to that. There are a couple of other significant challenges that that arise when we talk about the uh, the use of pornography, which include um, there's no ramp up time with pornography. When you think about mm. partnered sex or even solo sex like masturbation, there's a process of getting your body to a space where you're getting aroused and you're kind of getting more and more turned on. Then there's increased stimulation. You're kind of going through this course of your sexual response cycle. When we think about pornography, Right. You can go to a porn website and then fast forward a video to the exact moment that you're most interested by. And you're not even giving your body a chance to go through this warming up process. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no sexual response cycle that's being activated. It's just kind of like immediate stimulation, immediate activation. And then what ends up happening is you're not you're not um, giving yourself time to slow down and be mindful and present in your sexual response. It's really just almost like. How do I get to that quick release, right? How do I just get to ejaculation and and get the, uh, the, the you know to the orgasm, the feeling of you know of uh, of if it's if it's the elation of the orgasm or the consequence, such as feeling relaxed, feeling tired afterwards, whatever it is, you, whatever it is you're trying to pursue, that that can result in a change in how we think about sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. But another component that shows up quite a bit with pornography is that uh, pornography is the worst educator about sexual function and sexual health because very little of what happens in pornography is accurate, Yeah. right? So for example, I, uh, if a, a man comes for, for therapy and says, um, I have premature ejaculation, I'm only reaching, I'm only lasting 20 minutes during, during uh, intercourse. And when I'm watching porn, you know, these guys are lasting an hour or longer. What's wrong with me? And well, the average man lasts between three and five minutes during intercourse. So the idea of seeing someone have intercourse in a porn video for an hour is completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Right. Or or the kinds of sexual activities people enjoy. You may become uh, um, you may become, you know, normalize certain sexual activities as like, oh, this is what all partners, you know, men or women would enjoy engaging in. And maybe not everyone likes those things. But then you have this expectation that all of my sexual encounters should include these sexual behaviors. Or maybe it, it um, results in alterations to how we think about the human body. Mm. Right. A, uh, a porn actor or actress, uh, they are. Literally, their entire job is tending to their bodies so that they look a certain way on video. Uh, or, or are they using, um, you know, di- digital editing to make yourself look a certain way that doesn't necessarily reflect how the human body looks for the vast majority of people? So does it change what our expectations are about how we look or how our partners look? Mm-hmm. So I think there are, there are a, a number of different areas in which uh, ongoing or excessive pornography use can cause difficulties. But I would also say is that pornography is not inherently bad. Right. If somebody watches porn, it's not, I wouldn't say like, oh, you have to immediately stop that. That's bad for you. I would bring this back into the question of values. 
right? Is this value congruent for you? Are you engaging in something that is a healthy way to engage? Or is it an unhealthy way that you're utilizing this medium? As I would say, if someone is approaching sex in a way that's unhealthy, well, is that workable for you? Is that healthy for you? Or is that unhealthy for you? So I don't necessarily look at porn as being good or bad, or even looking at sex as being good or bad. It's really a question of, is it consistent with your values, consistent with what you want? And are you doing it in a way that's healthy for you and for your partner? So I think a lot of that is a, is a really more of, an, of a conversation mm-hmm. than just the simple, you know, slapping a label on like porn is bad. Don't watch porn. It's bad yeah, for porn, you. Porn bad. Don't watch. Right. Yeah. Porn <laughs> can be bad if you're using it in a way that's unhealthy or unworkable for you. But it really needs to be what you know, what's consistent with your values and what works for the life that you're living. Yeah. Well, well said. And I think that there are, is, uh, you know, I think that there is porn that's now being produced for educational purposes for individuals and for couples but that's sure you know i think that's few and far between i think if the you know the average guy in their 20s or 30s or 40s is going on to you know Pornhub, they're probably not searching for porn education right you know or or you know tantric exercises they're you know probably searching for what they desire in order to get off sure um okay so i have i have now we're gonna we're just gonna go we're gonna go into stuff this is gonna be fun so premature ejaculation um talk you've kind of give you've given us some insight into um you know what it is and and some of the conditions that can um be uh, behind them right but be, be causing it i guess we could say uh but tell us a little bit in terms of <clears throat> what's the functionality in the body that's actually going on uh mentally physically maybe emotionally uh and then and maybe just just distinguishing or differentiating between uh, the sort of like medical side of things that can cause premature ejaculation and then the sort of psychological componentry. Sure. So before I, I go into answering your question, I want to give you a, a brief outline about how we typically approach sexual dysfunction at large, Yeah, please. Um, which I think it could be a helpful way to, to break down things like psychoeducation versus intensive therapy. So mm. the basic structure, the basic model we use in sex therapy is called the PLICIT model, which is an acronym for permission, limited information, specific suggestions, and intensive therapy. Uh, permission is literally, we are asking permission from someone before we dive into their sexual health history, right? Sex. I actually say that the two areas that, that people are most private about are sex and their finances. Right. And I actually find people are more uncomfortable talking about their finances than they are talking about sex. Right. But that being said, before we just dive in and say, oh, tell me about your most recent direction, I want to get permission because this is a private area of your life. And I don't want to just impose and invade your privacy by asking questions you're not ready to answer. So the first step is literally to ask permission. So the way that I open up that that dialogue is um, like when I'm doing, let's say, an initial evaluation is I'll say, do you have any concerns about your sexual function? And if the answer to that question is yes, my follow up is, would you be open to my asking you some questions about what's been going on? That's my permissions question. If they if the answer to that question is no, I drop it and they are now informed. They're explicitly informed. This is a place where we can talk about this. If you're not ready to talk about that, 100% fine. Your privacy is yours. If and when you're ready to explore this further, this is a place we can do that. So we're literally getting permission uh, before we dive into, jump into any questions. The second uh, level of intervention is is LI, limited information, is really about psychoeducation. Hmm. Sometimes all a person needs is information that helps clarify their sexual function, which sometimes is enough to just reduce their anxiety. Mm -hmm. So for example, an, an individual coming and saying, Um, I'm only lasting 20 minutes during intercourse. What's wrong with me? And then telling them, well, you know, the the average man lasts between three and five minutes. And then the response is like, oh, Mm -hmm. 
So, so you're saying I'm okay. And then all of a sudden, like there, there's like a lot less pressure, a lot less anxiety. Or for example, a, a woman who says, I'm not able to have an, have an orgasm during intercourse. And if you inform them, well, actually 70% of women don't have an orgasm during intercourse alone. But 80% of women can experience an orgasm through manual or oral stimulation of the clitoris. And 94% of women can experience an orgasm with the use of a vibrator. Which means if you aren't experiencing an orgasm just in intercourse alone, that's actually more, more the norm than it is the exception. Mm-hmm. So just sometimes simple psychoeducation can really be what all a person needs. Um, maybe it's education about the sexual response cycle. And there's, there's two primary models that we use to understand the sexual response cycle. And uh, one is, uh, was developed by Masters and Johnson in 1966 that was initially really geared towards everyone. Rosemary Bassett in 2000, you know, through her research, found that does not do a particularly good job of explaining female sexuality. And she, and she developed a circular sexual response model. But sometimes just going through just that basic information is all a person needs. So that's the limited information component. Then you have specific suggestions. And here we're getting into some more active components in therapy. There may be behavioral strategies like uh, behavior relaxation, diaphragmatic breathing, muscle relaxation, mindfulness, um, and maybe understanding uh, specific uh, sexual health exercises like sensate-focused therapy. So you're working on specific exercise. Maybe it's it's uh, challenging maladaptive or unhelpful thoughts, such as, I need a full erection to enjoy sex. Well, let, let's explore that thought. Maybe there are ways to enjoy sex without a full erection, mm. right? So we're, we're kind of playing around with your thoughts a little bit and how you conceptualize and how you think about your sexual experiences. Then the last level is the IT, intensive therapy. That's where you're really diving into more substantive, deeper rooted issues. That's where maybe you're dealing with things like sexual trauma um, or significant um, uh, conflicting cultural or religious values where you're, this is not just about doing some exercises. You really have to unpack quite a bit more and we're getting more into that intensive therapy. So when an individual presents with without a premature ejaculation, we're using that model to kind of outline different ways to approach the treatment. So we're not just diving into, you know, an intensive treatment model. We want to first go through, uh, again, the, the permission stage to kind of make sure we're, we have permission to access, the, you know, to, to go into these questions. But then we have these varying levels of intervention. Premature ejaculation in contrast to, let's say, delayed ejaculation is generally uh, organic in its origin. It can be the result of, um, of you know, hypersensitive nerve endings in the penis um, this is a neurological issue. Orgasm and ejaculation is a spinal reflex, not something you have control over once you hit the ejaculatory threshold. And in many cases, it's really just kind of how your body is wired. Now, that being said, that can still be impacted by things like anxiety, things like stress, things like pressure. Because if you, you know, earlier to, uh, in, our, in our talk, we were talking about the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is how you're kind of priming yourself for orgasm and ejaculation. So if you have too much sympathetic nervous system activation earlier in the sexual response cycle, you can actually be priming yourself for ejaculation earlier. Hmm. So it can be that things like stress and anxiety can exacerbate PE, but PE in many cases can have an organic basis. If there is an organic basis, there are interventions that, that can be used for that. Um, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, is a class of antidepressant. Uh, things like Lexapro, Zoloft, Paxil are medications that um, have a secondary effect of uh, of reducing penile sensitivity, can, uh, which can allow a man to last longer uh, during intercourse. Uh, there can be potentially some um, undesirable iatrogenic side effects, such as low desire. Some men do experience uh, changes to their to their erectile functioning on SSRIs. 
But SSRIs can be uh, one one um, form of intervention. There are also topical creams you can use that that uh, decrease sensitivity in the penis. Um, and there are also a whole slew of behavioral strategies you can use. So, for example, uh, if we think about the ejaculatory threshold, let's say uh, zero to 100, 100 is ejaculation. And if we think about the ejaculatory threshold being at like, let's say 95, mm. once you once you hit 95, your body's taking over. You can no longer hold back uh, ejaculation. It becomes against a spinal reflex. So if you think about the uh, kind of going through that, you know, that zero to 95 too quickly, we have to learn how to increase um, the your, your awareness of your body and noticing different cues and how to slow things down. So there's a number of different strategies that help facilitate that process. There's a, a, an intervention called the stop-start technique, where you're kind of allowing yourself to increase your arousal and bringing it back down. Letting it go a little bit higher and then bringing it back down. And you're kind of learning to start hovering at higher and higher levels on that ejaculatory continuum. And it, it, this promotes something called edging, mm-hmm. where you're trying to get as close to that 95 as you can and kind of hovering around that area. And then when you feel like you're ready to move towards ejaculation, kind of allowing your body to kind of accelerate things to moving towards ejaculation. So a lot of this is kind of learning your body. So even uh, if you're doing, let's say, a stop-start technique, this is not done through a, through this lens of like, here's this agenda that we're trying to work towards. It's really trying to promote kind of tuning into your body and tuning into pleasure and sex being a pleasure-focused act, not an outcome-focused act, mm-hmm. and contributing to an overall experience of enjoyment between either the, the, the two, two people or more, if let's say there's more than two people involved in sex, or if, even if you're having sex by yourself, if you're engaging in masturbation, how are you approaching this through a mindful, pleasure-focused route where you're tuning into your body, not just looking at what is the outcome that I'm trying to get to? Yeah, I think that's I think that's wonderful. There's some really helpful things in there, it's, you know, especially around the you know stop start technique and um, being able to sort of maybe play around with edging and and I think the biggest piece that stands out to me that I hope that you know, men take away from this is that it is about getting into your body. You know, it's about tuning into the physical sensations that are actually happening. Uh, because I think a lot of guys get stuck in, I call it mental masturbation, but mm-hmm. <laughs> they get stuck in, in their thought process about what's happening physically. And for many men, they just feel like they're along for the ride with what their penis is doing. Sure. You know, it's just like, oh, my body's orgasming now or, oh, I can't get hard. Right. And so, and, and for a lot of them, it's a disconnection, right? Because many of us have been taught to uh, over index rationality. And so mm-hmm. we live within the rational context and we're disconnected from the physiological context. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, I'm going to shift gears here and maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to this, but what happens post orgasm for men? Because I think that there's uh, I'm going to be crude and I hope you don't mind, but there's a lot of guys talk about quote unquote post nut clarity, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, some guys vehemently like fervently believe that they don't know if they really like a woman or a man until they orgasm mm-hmm. and that there's some sort of magical uh, clarity that comes after a man orgasms. And so I'm hoping that you can maybe from uh, a cl- clinical or physical standpoint, just explain what happens in the body in, in inside of a man's body after an orgasm and what might that clarity that that man is experiencing be a result of? Sure. So the first piece, just to respond from a purely physiological perspective, 
when after a man ejaculates, there's something called the refractory period. And all men lose their ability to ejaculate again immediately. Most men lose their erections, or at least many men lose their erections as well. And this is uniformed across the board. The length of the refractory period depends on a whole bunch of factors. So younger men typically have a shorter refractory period, and as you age, typically gets longer. So a young man, let's say 18, 19, 20-year-old, who ejaculates may be able to ejaculate again after 10 or 15 minutes. A 70 or 80-year-old man may not be able to ejaculate again for 72 hours, right? So the refractory period gets longer and longer. So it's kind of your body's recovery after ejaculation takes place. Women don't have a refractory period following orgasm, which is why women can experience multiple orgasms. So you can kind of have this increase during arousal. You have this thing called plateau. You have the spike during orgasm. And women can go right back into plateau and then orgasming again after that. Men have to go through this refractory period where they they can ejaculate again afterwards, but it takes you some time in between. Now, during ejaculation, there's a whole lot of things that take place. It's kind of like um, like a fireworks show in your brain. Like there's all kinds of hormones and neurotransmitters that are being released. There's dopamine and serotonin, oxytocin, which is the emotion, which is the uh, the the hormone associated with opening up and connecting, and and uh, it's kind of like the love hormone, the trust hormone Bonding. that some men may experience. That following ejaculation, they feel this sense of connection. It's also a, a lot of endorphins that are released. So men feel and women following orgasm can feel a sense of calm, a sense of relaxation which kind of allows you to engage in like maybe feeling connected and open to another person. Ejaculation in many ways um, can be seen as a a purely biological, physiological response, but in many ways, it's really also a, a, a powerful component to an emotional response. Ejaculation as an expression of how connected I am to you, how turned on I am by you, how much I care for you. If you're, if that, you know, that, that relationship does embody, let's say, um, a more of an intimate emotional relationship. Is it, is it really an expression of love? Of like, here's, I, I'm showing there's a physical act of how much I love you. You're, you're really kind of creating opportunities for really powerful emotional connection. So some men and women may find that following orgasm, you have kind of this physiological sense of calm, your body kind of kicks back into your parasympathetic nervous system. You feel calm and relaxed and slowed down. Oxytocin is released. You're kind of ha- you have opportunities for closeness, for bonding, for connection, and that may contribute to this uh, to this experience. Kind of what you're describing of uh, of this uh, this emotional engagement. Some men actually have the opposite. Hmm. It's something called post orgasm illness syndrome, uh, which is a, a, which is a fairly recently researched a condition that men experience almost flu-like symptoms after ejaculation. Some men feel like confused, they have headache, they don't feel well, and it can last actually for uh, for quite a while after orgasm, um, which is, uh, and I'm not fully well-versed in all the treatments. I think this is, there are not necessarily a specific uh, kind of a treatment as usual protocols for treating a post-orgasm illness syndrome. I, I would have to look a little bit further into that. Uh, but some men actually feel uncomfortable uh, following an orgasm, but that that is something that I would certainly bring up with uh, with a physician to talk about if there's any any potential organic issues that are at play there. Yeah, outstanding, man. I mean, this has been a wonderful conversation. I I want to just maybe close off with a more um, not philosophical, but but sort of uh, just a question around what you just to get your perspective because there's a lot of research that's coming out now that uh, indicates that men, young men between their, between the age of 18 and 29 are increasingly not being sexually active. Mm-hmm. Increasingly, right? And I think it's raised to like 28% or something like that or 29%. 
Um, I'd have to go back and actually find the the data as high as 32% of men between 18 and 29 are not sexually active. And it's it's risen quite a bit in the last decade. I'm curious from your perspective, if you have any insight into why that might be and maybe the impacts on that that might have or not have on on young men and uh, and anything that you would sort of say to, to young men that are listening to this show. Sure. Uh, it's a great question that I don't think has a simple answer. Hmm. I think you're likely looking at multivariate uh, contributors to why you've seen changes to sexual behavior, sexual patterns in young men. Some of it potentially being related to the high levels of stress that um, that I think young people in general feel that uh, you know it's a very different uh, very different for young adults now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I think there's a lot more financial pressures. Things have gotten more expensive. Education is a lot more expensive. I think the accessibility of pornography may be a component there that. Um, you know, it used to be that you really had to, uh, if you wanted to have a meaningful experience of sexual arousal and involves seeking out sexual partners. And I think that as pornography has become more and more accessible, you know, over the past 20, 25 years, but certainly since the, uh, the smartphone has come out where you can really, you, everyone's walking around with potentially Pornhub in their hands. Like you can, you can access it wherever you want. Um, I think maybe, uh, may contribute to that as well. Um, I think there also may be the impact of things like social media and how people expectations people have when they see others and and uh, the impressions people are giving um, of uh, of their experiences on social media and how a lot of things have become hypersexualized in many ways in our culture. I think those are all things that can can contribute to changes in how we how we value and how we place emphasis on sexual relationships. Hmm. What I would say is that. Uh, sex and sexuality is a remarkably personalized experience. I tell people all the time, there is no right and wrong way for you to be a sexual being. And if you are in a space where you aren't interested in pursuing a sexual relationship and that's okay with you, that's fine, right? I think the question becomes, where, where do your values lie? What's important to you here? And if you have values that are placed in your physical experience of pleasure, your emotional experience of pleasure, are there barriers that are getting in your way? Are you avoiding sex? Because there are things that are making this uncomfortable for you. And if you're avoiding, this kind of goes back to the very beginning of our, of our conversation today. If you see anxiety as something you have to eradicate in order for you to engage your values, you may be caught in a somewhat unworkable tug of war. Mm. To use uh, one of Stephen Hayes metaphors, like the, the tug of war metaphor, you may be caught in an unworkable tug of war that you're struggling against something that you don't have to fight. You don't have to eradicate. So I think the the question I would I would always bring back to if, if anyone came to me and said I'm not sexually active what's wrong with me the question I would ask first of all is trying to understand where is that coming from and what's the origin story of of, uh, of that experience for you but also very importantly what what do your values indicate here what's important to you what do you want to see for yourself and are there meaningful ways you can take uh, steps to move towards your values you know committed actions to move towards your values. And how do you find workable ways to increase your sense of emotional and psychological flexibility to engage the parts of your experience that may be uncomfortable or painful or or difficult? Hmm. Well said, man. Well said. Well, listen, thank you so much for for joining me. And uh, if people want to learn more about you, your work, where where can they find you? Where should they go? Sure. So uh, my practice name is called Blue Anchor Psychology. Uh, the the metaphor of the anchor actually being rooted in acceptance and commitment therapy kind of how do we how do we connect ourselves to the present how do we ground ourselves in the in the in the uh, face of 
uh, deep in internal pain to maintain our cores and, and maintain our focus on what our values are. Uh, so the website is um, is blueanchorpsychology.com. Um, and, you know, we, we have uh, multiple providers who can, you know, serve, uh, you know, uh, different communities and different needs. Um, and we also have, uh, uh, you know, information available on there about sexual function and sexual relationships and other uh, other elements related to mental health um, that are, are available there as well. Um, and if, I'm always happy if people have questions, they want to reach out. You can certainly reach out through the website. I'm happy to answer questions that people have or if they need uh, guidance or advice about you know, where to seek, uh, you know, medical providers to address organic sexual difficulties, or if they have relationship or, or sexual difficulties, and they have questions, and we're always more than happy to answer questions. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much uh, for everyone that's out there listening. Don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will enjoy, that you know is going to find this conversation fascinating, educating, inspiring, etc. cetera. Uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Thank you.